We're in part five this morning of this series. A few weeks ago, we said that as you read the Gospels, it's the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus' life and ministry in the New Testament. If you read through looking for the thing that Jesus talked about most, it becomes crystal clear to you that what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom. Especially when you read the Gospel of Matthew, 50 times in 28 chapters, Jesus references uh, the kingdom of God. What he talked about all the time, what he was about, was the kingdom of God. We said that the story of the Bible is actually a story about kingdoms. And we took some time a few weeks ago to kind of establish the framework through which we see the kingdom of God coming to earth. And then we asked this question. We asked, what does it actually mean to live under this king's reign? And in answer to that, we said that an encounter with Jesus forces every single one of us to look into and to deal with the core issues, the darkest parts of our character, and to allow his mercy and his love and his wisdom to redefine who we are and to change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and with one another. So that's how we get into this topic, way back in the first part of December. Then a couple weeks later, we looked at some verses in Matthew 13, deep into Jesus' kingdom teaching. Each time he's telling story, like story after story after story, and each time he's saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. If you're wondering, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is a heavenly kingdom that lands smack in the middle of our everyday lives. And even here, Jesus said, in the harshness and the mess of earth, his kingdom is the way things really are. That Jesus' kingdom invites us to immerse ourselves in the whole gospel. He came to preach a, a massive gospel. It's so inclusive. And we get to listen, and we get to consider, and we get to think through the incredible possibilities of kingdom living as Jesus taught it. And then we said that the practical promise of our faith journey is that as we live in faithfulness to the Christ the King, his reign will have a transformational effect on us. Anything less than that is not the gospel Jesus came to bring. Part of the problem is that we are so inclined to make things happen for God. You ever found yourself there? You just, that we're just trying to make things happen for God. We just want, we're trying so hard to get it all right and get everything all in alignment. But he just wants us to live in a dimension that is already here. He's just inviting us to be a part of what he's already doing. And just as Jesus entered our world and he suffered and he died to bring life, you and I are invited to do the same for others in his name, that you and I are invited to embrace the vision of Jesus and enter our world as his representatives. So we started a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and announces that, uh, kind of launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been uh, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or I suggested, I think a couple weeks ago, I suggested calling it Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. But I thought that's a bit, and that is, I believe, what it is, but it's a bit of a tongue twister, so it's, uh, let's just call it the Sermon on the Mount. So we took some time to, what it really is, by the way, is God's value system. You want to know the things that are super important to God, and I'm super important in the kingdom of God, this is it, it's God's value system. So we took some time to dig into the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, which we call the Beatitudes, and we looked at some of the things that maybe we've uh, taught or been taught or believed about the Beatitudes that aren't actually true. Uh, sometimes our interpretation and our application hasn't always been totally accurate when it comes to the Beatitudes. So, for instance, we said that the Beatitudes are not virtues, uh, they are not commands, they just are. 
And sometimes it's just what life deals us. So then we ask the question, then when what would it look like in light of the Beatitudes? What would it look like for us to leverage our happiness on behalf of those who have less than us? That was our takeaway from that. So then last week, we talked about Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 in verse 13, where he says that we are the salt of the earth. And we talked about what that means for us. And we said that salt always makes a difference. So that's where we've been. Today we're going to unpack verses 14, 15, 16. That's my intention this morning. Before we go any further, let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, just invite your presence into this place today. We thank you for each person that's here. I pray that you would quiet our hearts and kind of uh, free our minds from distraction. May we focus on the things you have for us today. May it be crystal clear to us what you want us to hear. And then may you embolden us and give us courage to act on that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Isn't it true that at some point in your life, maybe when you went from childhood to adulthood, um, maybe when you were a senior in high school, you remember that, right? Maybe when you were a senior in college, but there's this transition that all of us go through where we decide either consciously or subconsciously that, you know what, I got to figure out what works for me. I got to figure this out. There's this thing where we say, I know what my parents said, and I know what my church said, and I know what my teacher said, and I know what my friends said, I know what my grandparents said, but I've really got to figure out for myself what works for me. And so at some level, all of us begin experimenting with life. Maybe it was your freshman year of college, maybe it was the first week of your freshman year of college, or maybe it was that summer after you graduated from high school where you decided you're going to do all those things that you'd always been told not to do because I got to see if it works for me, I got to see what I'm missing out on. Maybe it was when you got your driver's license and you told your parents you're going to pick up your little brother, but maybe it was when you got your first real job, maybe it was when you moved out of your parents' home. Uh, What we all have in common at some level is that at some point, we all experiment with life to figure out what works for us. Because there's something in you and there's something in me that wants to figure out, how can I be happy? How can I experience contentment? How can I be satisfied? How can I get happy and how do I stay happy? What kinds of decisions will make me happy? What kinds of relationships will make me happy? What kind of experiences will make me happy? So we make some happiness decisions, right? And we spend some happiness money and we get into some happiness relationships and we go through some happiness breakups. So we buy a happiness car and we go on a happiness vacation Because they're just trying to figure out life and what's the right combination? What's going to work for me? What's the right kind of job? What's the right kind of community? What's the right kind of uh, belief system? What's the right kind of person? All of of that is completely normal, by the way. And most of us, uh, most of this happens in the the momentum years of life, you know, the years when there's this sequence that has this sense of something building and building and building and building. And, and it's some, like someone put the sequence in place, like you, you know, you're ninth grade and you're a freshman and then you're 10th grade and then you're 11th grade and finally you're 12th grade or maybe you're 12th grade again, I don't know, but you're a senior and, and you graduate and it's finally summer after, va- after graduation. And the next thing you know, that's short-lived because the next thing you know, you're a freshman again and then you're a sophomore and that one really sucked. And then you're a junior and then you're a senior and you graduate again and you got your bachelor's degree and you got your first job and you got your first house and you got your first whatever and everything's a first and there's momentum right 
or maybe right out of high school, you decide, I'm not going to do the college thing. That's not the path for me. I'm going to get my first job. So now you're making more money than all your friends who are in college. And you're like, what are you guys are suckers. And you get that first apartment, and you get that first roommate, and all these firsts. So there's all this momentum. Life's an adventure because everything's new. And before long, you're getting your first promotion and your first, can I say, first marriage and your first child and your first paid vacation and just first after first after first. And there's all this momentum at this stage of life. And it's exciting because you can just feel yourself moving forward finally. And it's all about where and what and who. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And who's going to be there? And where are we going after that? And what are we going to do after that? And who's going to be there? And that's normal. But one of the things that doesn't show up on the radar screen in the momentum years is the issue of purpose. Because at that point, he wants to think about purpose. Really, my driving force is my happiness. And at that stage in your life, when you hear someone talking about purpose, you're like, uh, you know, discover your life purpose. And who needs to hear that right now? This isn't the right time for that. I will address that a little bit later. We don't really care about that big picture thing at that point. All we care about in the moment is I want to drive one of those. And I want to know who she is. Purpose doesn't grab you. It doesn't stir any emotion in you at that point in the momentum years. What stirs emotion is what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And who's going to be there? And the whole issue of why just typically isn't on the radar screen. But eventually, somewhere along the way, you're going to run into the why question. And especially when you're looking, some of you are looking back right now, some of you are right in it, some of you are thinking, oh, is this how this works, really? You don't know what you're talking about. But listen, if you're in the momentum years right now, so let's say you're in your late teens, your 20s, even all the way to your early 30s, um, and you're making some cool transitions right now, and you're in that what's next, you know, where now, who's next stage. Just listen to this for the next few minutes because you may get a heads up in this message today that could prevent a whole lot of heartache for you because eventually everybody, 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 everybody gets to the point where you pause and ask the question, maybe not the way I'm asking it, but in some form you ask the question, why? You know, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And I'll tell you when this um, actually happens. It happens oftentimes when the momentum runs out and life starts looking the same. Because, you know, when it's 8th grade and then it's ninth grade and a new school and 10th grade and 11th grade and 12th grade and then summer after graduation and then graduate and summer and first job and freshman year and college graduation and first real job and then first promotion, first raise, first transfer, first child, first mortgage. You're in the momentum year. Stuff is happening. Things are changing. And you don't necessarily hit this. You can skip right past it because you're consumed with all these transitions with the pace of your life that you don't give much thought to it. But when momentum slows down and life all starts to look the same, because after that, and you get a job, because everybody says you should get a a job. So you got a job. And every day you go to your job. Then you get into a serious relationship and you get engaged and you get married and you come home from your honeymoon. And then you got to go back to your job. <laughs> and then you realize, holy moly, I'm married. She's still here. <laughs> I woke up this morning, she was here, and I came back from work and she's still here. I must be married. Oh, and the next day, you go to your job, and you come home, and you're like, still married. Life starts to look the same. Oh, wait. And then you have a 
kid, you got it. <laughs> and you have another kid, where you, and then they're like, what is, before you know it, somehow you have these parallel tracks where you're either doing your job or you're doing your marriage or you're raising your kids. Doing your job, doing your marriage, raising your kids. Doing your job, raising your marriage, doing your marriage, raising, oh, go on vacation? Oh, go, doing your job, doing your marriage, raising your kids. And it's just normal. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But somewhere in the it's all looking the same mode, you realize that tomorrow is going to look a lot like yesterday. The problem is you don't look like you did yesterday. And you don't feel like you did yesterday. And at some point, let me tell you, the earlier, the better. That's why if you're approaching the momentum years or you're still in the momentum years, if you just pause and pay attention and uh, you'll, you'll be so much better off if you deal with this earlier, the better. But at some point, we're going to stop and go, why? What is this all about? And we bump into this issue of purpose. And a lot of people bump into the purpose question, but they don't really make any effort to answer the question. Uh, so they make some really bad decisions because they think what I need, I guess, probably, because I'm pretty bored with all this, is a change of scenery. And the reason I'm just kind of about life is I, I just need some new, everything's the same. I need some new. I need a new job. I need a new car. I need a new wife. I definitely need some new kids. I need a new husband. I need a new look. I need an extreme makeover, whatever. If I can just change the scenery a little bit, then I'll feel like I used to in the momentum years. Then you end up with bad decisions, which leave scars and baggage that you carry around. And then you have things like alimony and child support and other things you can't really afford. And then you find yourself looking in the mirror and now you're even older and you're going, but you know what, why? It's a great question. I'll tell you why you can't avoid the question. This is why you can't avoid the why question. You can put it off, you can keep kicking it down the path, but the reason you can't ultimately avoid the question is because I think God put that question in us. And it was put in us because we are made in his image. And because we're made in the image of God, whether you believe in God or we're not sure where you land with all that, I'm convinced it's because you're in the image of God, eventually the purpose question bubbles to the surface. And if you recognize it for what it is, it's an awesome thing. And if you don't recognize it and you're like, well, I'm just discontent. I, I need a new this, or I need a new that, and I need a new something else, then what you're going to, uh, you're just going to, you're just kind of going to go around and around and around. But eventually, by God's grace, maybe you'll get to the place where you can look in the mirror and go, you know what? I think the issue is significance. I think the issue is purpose. I think the issue is, is meaning. I, I don't think another fill-in-the-blank whatever is going to fill this void. And then, if that isn't enough, at some point you run to somebody who seems to have this whole thing figured out. And you have a love-hate relationship with those people because they're, like, content. Um, and that's how you experience it. You don't, you, you, you don't know that they have purpose. You, don't, you just know that, boy, he, she is so content. She has a lot more than me, or maybe she has a lot less than me. Maybe, she has a, maybe her life is exactly like mine. But regardless of that, she's content, or he's content. When you dig around below the surface of content people, here's what you'll find. That somewhere along the way, they discovered purpose. 
Because here's what purpose does. Purpose centers us. Purpose brings relationships and money and goals and dreams and kids and career and all the different components of life. Brings all those things within some kind of boundary and puts sort of a perimeter around all those things and it centers us and it keeps us from running into all kinds of unhealthy extremes. Promise, or purpose keeps us from being ruled by our appetites. Which, I guess, goes to, just implies that a lack of purpose leads us to be ruled by our appetites. So purpose keeps us from being ruled by our appetites and it helps us make sense of all kinds of things that often don't make sense. And it's a very, very powerful thing when you discover the answer to the question, not what, not who, not where, but why. And I tell you, um, I'm blessed because early on in my life I rubbed shoulders and I mean I spent some significant time with some people, with some men especially in my life who had figured this out. And early on I began to ask that question. I was pushed to begin to ask the question, not what, not who, not where, but why. And it's huge, and we all, we'll all bump into it, and I just say the earlier the better. So maybe for you, for you maybe today is the first time that you've been kind of thrown, had this thrown in your face. Maybe it's the 15th time, or maybe it's the 100th time. Maybe you're 20-something, maybe you're late teens, maybe you're, you're like, I, I just, uh, you could be right on this one. I, I think I better start wrestling with this right now. I don't want to wait till I'm like really old, like 45, and until I have this stuff in my past. This is important because Jesus addressed it. And we aren't surprised by that because if he really loves us the way the scripture says that he loves us, then he's going to deal with the things that are most important for the human experience. And so one day he sits down on a hillside and he had his closest guys with him and a crowd begins to gather as they often did. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, I'm, going to, I'm talking about the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And he gathers these people together. And this is a group of people, this is so important, who had no political leverage They had no financial leverage. They had no relational leverage. They were just a group of Jewish men and women, primarily. There may have been a few children scattered in there who had lost hope individually and nationally. They'd lost their faith in their religious system. They didn't feel as if they were anything more than slaves and servants of the Roman Empire. And Jesus gathers this group of people together who have no form, uh, formation, no identity, no organization, really nothing to offer. And he says to them, uh, let me tell you why you're here. Let me tell you why God put you here. Let me tell you how God views you. If you would ever embrace this, then you wouldn't be so worried about your national self-esteem. You know, the glory days of Israel, sound familiar? There's a new thing. There's a new thing to embrace. There's a new thing to wake up to in the morning thinking about. There's a new thing, new reason to get out of bed. I'm going to give you your purpose for your life, Jesus is saying. So we're in Matthew 5. Jesus looks at this group of primarily Jewish people, and here's what he says, verse 14. You are the light of the whole world. You are the light of the world. You guys, you women, all you kids, you are the light of the world. And they have this thought. They had to have had this thought. Are you sure? Come again? What? Us? Are you sure, Jesus? I mean, we're nothing. We're a blip. We can't do anything. We have no influence. We have no leverage. We're subservient to this empire. And Jesus says, well, that's what you think, but let me tell you how I view you, and let me show you how your Heavenly Father views you. 
So those of you who've come and gathered to hear me teach, those of you who've begun to put your faith in me, those of you who are beginning to recognize and admit that maybe I've been sent from God, Jesus says, maybe I've, and I've been sent on some specific kind of mission, those of you who would even admit that maybe I am the Son of God, he says, let me just tell you how God, your Father, views you. You are the light of the world. Jewish people who are there, they're really familiar with the Old Testament, and they might have thought, oh, I know what you're talking about. I know that verse. I know what you're talking about. It's in the book of Isaiah, because the prophet Isaiah uh, said that Israel, the nation, is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And what Isaiah meant was that in the Old Testament days, that God was going to raise up the nation of Israel, give them such successful military power and, and, and victory and such economic advantage in that region that all the other countries in the region would look at Israel and go, man, look at Israel. Their God must be the true God. Because in those days, when a nation surfaced as a powerful, successful nation, all the surrounding nations assumed, well, it's because of their God. And so God, in the glory days of Israel, under David and Solomon, had established the nation like a light to the rest of the world. And the other nations looked at Israel and said, their God must be God. And so the Jews who were sitting there listening to Jesus must have thought, oh, you're talking about the Jewish nation. You're talking about us as a nation. We're to be a light to the Gentiles. But as Jesus continues to teach, and as you look at what he said, uh, even before these verses, it's very clear he's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about a political kingdom. He's not talking about having so much wealth that the world is in awe or having so much political influence or such a large, powerful army that it intimidates the rest of the world around you. He's talking about something completely different. And he says the landscape has changed. God's agenda, his plan that you're so familiar with from the Old Testament is being fulfilled before your eyes. You are the light of the world. Through you, the world is going to know what God is up to. Something about you is going to reflect in such a tangible way that people are going to have an aha moment as it relates to their Father in heaven because you are the light of the world. <clears throat> if I were to uh, walk into your workplace tomorrow or find you at school or go to your home or find you at the gym or wherever it is that you hang out and I were to walk up to you and say, you are the light of the world. I think you'd probably turn the other way and say, idiot. <laughs> Not the light of the world. I'm a teacher. I'm a bus driver. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a sales associate. I'm an office manager. I'm not the light of anything. And if I were to walk into your life at work and say, look around, see this place? You're the light. You're the light of this. This is your world. You're the light of your world. And you'd be like, no, I'm not. And the people listening to Jesus had the same reaction. They were like, uh, I don't think so. No, 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 Jesus. You don't understand our situation. We're not a light. There's nothing happening here. There's no relation to us and anything good in the world. What do you mean we're the light? So Jesus keeps on teaching. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. In the NIV, that's what it says. In the New American Standard, it adds a word that's actually in the original, and the word is set. So it reads, a town set on a hill. This is an interesting word. It's not the word built. He's not saying that, you are, that you're a city that was just indiscriminately built on a hill. He's saying you are a town that was strategically placed on a hill. That the designers and the builders said, you know, where's the best place to start this town? 
Let's put it in a place that's prominent. And these towns were usually built out of white limestone. So even in the daytime, these cities gleamed in the sun. And at night, they were lit up by torches and lamps and LEDs and stuff. But he says, a town, a town set on a hill, a town strategically placed on a hill cannot be hidden. He goes on, verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. When people light a lamp in a house, they don't put it under a bowl, do they? No, of course not. Instead, they put it strategically on its stand. When you light a lamp in your home, where do you put the lamp? You don't, you don't put it on the floor in the corner behind a chair under a thing. You, you don't set it outside the door. You don't put it under a bowl. What do you do with your light? I mean, in their culture, of course, it's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer to this. Jesus, he, he find, they find the most strategic place in the house to put the light. We put it somewhere where this one light can give light to everyone in the house because a little bit of light goes a long way. Sound familiar? So what's the result? Verse 15, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So everyone in the house is impacted by a well-placed light. Then he says this, verse 16. In the same way, don't miss this because this is the hinge point in the text. In the same way that a town is strategically placed on a hill so it can't be missed, in the same way that you strategically place lamps in your room or in your house to give maximum light to the maximum number of people, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Pause. Which means that what he's about to talk about is not something simply internal, okay? This is something external. This isn't just about what you believe. This is about what you do, and I'm going to say more specifically, how you do what you do. This isn't about thoughts and emotions and how I feel during that song on Sunday and internal devotion and convictions and intentions. He says, I want you to light, let your light shine before others so that they may see. In other words, here's what I want you to do. You got to do something. I want you to just not just believe something and feel something and connect with something internally which is all good, but now you need to do something. Why? So that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven Amen. or celebrate and honor and recognize your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying to this group, and it's preserved for us, I want you to embrace the fact that your purpose is to be light. Then go out and do the things. Do things in such a way that people connect the dots. Do things in such a way that people don't just go, oh, he's such a nice guy. Oh, she is so sweet. Oh, he's so polite. Jesus is like, that's fine. You know, you probably should be a nice, sweet, polite person. But he's like, I want, you to get, I want to be more specific than that. I want you to figure out what you can do and do it in such a way that people in your life recognize it and that somehow because of what you've done and how you've done it, they connect the dots and they don't only see what kind of person you are, but they begin to get a glimpse of the kind of God that you worship. Hmm. I love the fact that he says, so that they may praise or give glory to your Father in heaven. Not just God, but your Father. That's a relational connection. And they weren't used to hearing this kind of talk. Your father, that's personal, it's intimate, it's relationship that's going on on the inside, your father in heaven. So Jesus says, 
You're like a city that's intentionally set on a hill. You're like a lamp strategically placed in a room. Now I want you to figure out how to give your light out in such a way that people's attention is drawn not just to your good deeds, not just to your character, not just to your consistency, not just to your great attitude, not just to your generosity, not just to your good works, but that somehow what you do is done in such a way that people make the connection between what's going on in you and what God is up to in the world. Let your light shine in such a way that people will give praise and give honor, give attention, give credit to your Father in heaven. Now, this isn't easy stuff. Oh, and I'm not going to give you uh, three points of how to do this either. There is no formula, so relax. For some of us, this is an old idea and we need to be reminded regularly. For some of us, it's brand new. For some of you, you're picturing some, you know, how am I going to do this? What's this look like? And you're just picturing some long-haired bearded dude in a robe with a sandwich board yelling repent you know but that's not what we're talking about I don't recommend that I'm quite not sure of the effectiveness but here I'm not trying if you want here are the two we don't do that today we just get on Facebook uh, here are the two stand track here are the two unavoidable implications the first is one that we really push back on and it's this. According to Jesus, there is a purpose behind your current circumstances. Man, we could get into some sweet discussion about the sovereignty of God and how we're just chess pieces on the chessboard of life. And the God moves things. But I'm not going there because... Um, I just ain't. So uh, <laughs> I prefer to talk about things I have some idea about. Um, I've reframed this to where, this is where I land, that there is a purpose behind your current circumstances. So for many of you, I understand the pushback. I understand it. You're like, time out, whoa, 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 that's not right. Because where I am is pretty random. This is a random thing. I was happy in my job. I lost my job. Bouncing around from job to job in this job now that I really tolerate. God couldn't have a purpose in this. Or if, he, you know, if God made this happen, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God has a purpose. There couldn't be a purpose in this. Obviously, you've never visited my workplace. I'm working an hourly wage. That's a, it's a definition of dead end. My dream isn't coming true. I don't have a purpose there. I just happen to be where I am, doing what I'm doing, because I don't have anything else to do. <coughs> there couldn't be purpose in this. My life was like an, an interruption to the plan that I thought God had for my life. Hmm. Ever been there? I think we should ditch the word plan. Really. And I'm a planner and I love that, but I don't know if God works that way. I think we could just re replace it with the word purpose. It would make a lot more sense. So I can understand the pushback, and I think every single person in Jesus' audience thought, you know, what do you mean God has a purpose for us in this? Have you, have you looked around, Jesus? Like, we're like rubble on the pathway to Rome, you know? We're, we're nothing. So what do you mean God has a purpose? So here's what I want you to, to, to see, so just bear with me for a minute. I just want you to know that every single person that God has ever used has felt exactly what you feel when I say God has a purpose for you in your current circumstances. Everybody feels that way because we look at circumstances and we think, well, there's no purpose in this. I interviewed for that position and I ended up in this job. 
everybody that God has used in a significant way feels at some point like there's no purpose in it. So here's why. Think about the person or the persons maybe other than family that God used in a significant way to get your attention, to draw your attention toward him. Think about who that was. Maybe it was a small group leader, maybe it was a youth leader, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a camp counselor, maybe it was a friend in middle school, maybe it was a neighbor or some person at work. There was somebody along the way and God used them to draw you toward him. And you know what? You look at that and think that's like a divinely set up appointment. Because when you tell your story and say stuff like, well, I was just minding my own business and doing my own thing and God just dropped them right in my path and he put them right next to me and I just feel like God had a purpose in it. So God would say to you, I know you don't feel it. I know you don't see it. I know you're in the middle of it, so it's a little bit foggy, but I know you wonder if this could possibly be true for you. But let me tell you why you're here. It's not without purpose. You are the light of the world, of your world, and I have a purpose for you where you are. And if you'll embrace this purpose, you'll be shocked, he would say, at what I may be willing to do through you. But I don't think this happens until we admit that, huh, maybe I am the light of this neighborhood that I really don't want to live in. Maybe I am the light of the single parent home that I never planned on. Maybe I am the light of this workplace that wasn't my first, second, or third choice. Maybe I am the light in my family because I'm the only person in my family who's a Christian. Maybe I have purpose in these circumstances. The other part that we have to wrestle with is this. This is maybe even harder. This passage really forces us to ask the question, what can I do in my location? What can I do in my situation? What can I do in my surroundings that helps people connect the dots between who I am and who I believe in? What can I do to somehow point people toward my Father in heaven so he gets all the credit? So what can I do where my life is right now that would cause people's attention to move away from me and toward my Heavenly Father who wants to be their Heavenly Father? How do I bridge the gap between I'm a nice person, I'm a kind person, I work really hard, and the fact that I'm doing life this way because of my relationship with Jesus? How do I bridge that gap? Let me tell you, it's a powerful question, and it's not a common question. You may have been to church all your life and never asked this question, never thought about it, never heard it addressed. Um, you may have been around church people all, for a long time and never heard anybody talk about it. But I think it's a really paradigm-shifting question. What can I not think, pray, believe, but what can I do with the opportunities God has given me in the location where I find myself, whether God's placed me here or not, where I live, where I work, where I play, where I do relationships, what can I do that moves beyond, here's a really nice kind of, kind of uh, nice person who goes to church, what can I do to help connect who I am and what I am with who I believe in? So if you wrestle with this question, well, I know you're like, oh, let me write this down. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. But if you wrestle with this question long enough, you will come up with an answer. The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. And the answer to that question is why we're here. Yes. 
The answer to that question is your purpose in your circumstances. That's why we're taking up space and breathing air. You, we, are the light of the world. Feel the responsibility? You're the light of your community. You're the light of your workplace. You're the light of your school. You're the light of your family. You're the light of your neighborhood. So here's what I want to do. Just imagine with me. Imagine if everybody in this, just in this service, okay? Everybody in this room, everybody in our kids' ministries, everybody in the youth ministries with the middle schoolers today, with uh, everybody in our small groups through the week. Imagine if all of us, just for this week, we decided and accepted that, okay, I love where I live. I hate where I live, wherever. I love where I work. I hate where I work. Whatever you are on whatever spectrum. What if for this week we decided, okay, I can't answer everybody's questions, and that's been holding me back, because I think I can't really go public with this, because I can't answer their questions, because there's a whole lot I don't know. But for this week, I accept my role as the light in my world, and I will be the light. What if we asked God, beginning today, what if you asked him to give you some insight into how to answer this question, what can I do? If you have a purpose for me, God, in my current circumstances, in this location, in this situation, in this relationship, what can I do that would point and direct people's attention towards you? Because the bottom line is this. God's purpose in your current circumstances is to draw people's attention to your Father in heaven. And that's always true. This is what Jesus is saying, that God's purpose in your current circumstances is to draw people's attention to your Father in heaven. And for us to say, Jesus, I'm just going to accept that as true. So what if we just did this just for a week? What if we got a taste of it? I'll tell you how uh, you all, some of you already know how it works. Because it's why you're sitting in church this morning. It's why you're listening to this message. It's why you're back in church for the first time in a long time. It's why you're praying for the first time in a long time. It's why you're reading your Bible for the first time in a long time because it wasn't, it, wasn't, like, it wasn't an angel that showed up on the foot of your bed in the middle of the night and spoke to you and shook you out of your sleep and brought you to Jesus. I guarantee it wasn't. It's because you ran to somebody on location in the circumstances of their life and of your life, in your family, in your job, in your school, in your circle of friends, and something they said, something they did, Something about the way that they did life got your attention away from what a good, nice person they are and directed your attention to their Father in heaven. For a lot of us, we can point to people in our story and say, that's why. They were the light of your world. And now you and I have an opportunity, you and I would say responsibility, to do the same thing. So one last thing. If you choose instead to cover your light... Let me just tell you what happens so you'll have a heads up. So there's no need to like call me down the road somewhere and say what happened. If you've been a, uh, really no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what you believe, no matter how often you come to church, if you choose to cover your light, you will always live with a gnawing sense of discontentment. no matter what you accumulate, no matter what you experience. 
whatever you, no matter what you use to try to fill that void. And when, you, when you've covered your light, then when life causes you to bump into the question of purpose, you will continue to change scenery, change the players, change the look, change the car, change the career path, change the church for sure, and just continue and continue and continue to shift things around, trying to get to that place where you're content. But I'm telling you, if you've covered your light, you'll never get there. And here's why. Because you and I were created to be a light to the world. And if we're not doing this, we'll never ever really be happy or satisfied or content because when God creates us to do something, if we don't do what he created us to do, we will always live with the sense of purposelessness because we have not engaged in the purpose for which we've been created. So whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we accept it or not, we are, you are, the light of the world. And just as a city that's set on a hill can't remain hidden, just as a strategically placed lamp lights the whole room, in the same way we've been called and commissioned to let our light so shine before others that they may see our good works and give credit to our Father in heaven. So here's the, here's the question, here's where we're going to land. What would it look like in your circumstances if you took up the challenge to be the light of your world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled because we weren't your only option. (laughs) The idea that you've chosen to use us, that you have called us to be light in the darkness. We can kind of identify with your audience in Matthew 5. People who felt they had no standing in the world in which they lived We get that. So we're humbled. And I pray that each of us, in that spirit of humility, would also embrace the responsibility that there is someone in our world, there is someone in our circumstances who needs us to be the light who needs us to live in such a way, to act in such a way, to speak in such a way, to care in such a way, that the attention is shifted away from us into the God that we love and serve. May this be true of us. May it characterize us as a church and as families and as households and as people. All for your glory. In Jesus' name. Listen.
the light to God.